If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, continuing our series going through the Ten Commandments, looking today at the Eighth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It should be on the screen behind me, but you can also read it in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, looking at the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Uh, I am very sure, I am quite confident that every person in this room has a story about theft. Maybe you were the, the victim of theft, you had something stolen from you, but I bet most of us, if we're being honest, if we look back in our lives, if we think real hard, we can remember a time when we were the ones who stole something. You went to the doctor when you were a kid and you took a toy from the waiting room. You went into your parents' room and you took some change off the dresser. You, I don't know, staged a false break-in at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas on a fight night when they uh, had $160 million in the vault with 10 of your friends. So whenever they called security, they actually called you to come and pick up the money from them and take that away. And you had all $160 million with all 10 of your friends and your name, I don't know, is Daniel C. or something like that. I don't know. Maybe that's your case. Maybe that's your situation. All of those things are theft. My family goes to Branson every year for Thanksgiving. And last year, we took JC with us because, you know, she's our child. She goes with us wherever we go. And she was in a stroller when we went to the outlet mall in Branson. We did what we do every year whenever we did that. I go into Eddie Bauer. I spend about five minutes. I look at the flannel shirts. I look at the price tag, I raise my eyebrows, and then I leave. Every year. That's, it's a family tradition. That's what happens. Uh, but this year, we got a few stores down from Eddie Bauer, and I looked down, and JC was holding one of those shirts that I looked at in Eddie Bauer. And I thought, that's weird. We're not in Eddie Bauer anymore. And she has the shirt that was in Eddie Bauer. That shirt that I didn't buy because they were too expensive. It's in her hands right now as we're like eight stores down. We were far enough down that JC had officially successfully shoplifted. <laughs> she stole the shirt. So what did we do? We said, great, good job, way to go. And now that she's getting older, she knows her colors a little bit better. She's got better taste. I take her everywhere I go. It's one free shirt in every store. No, of course not. We grabbed it from her hands and said, oh no, how do we return this to Eddie Bauer without looking like we're returning a shirt that we didn't buy to Eddie Bauer? So we just walked in, threw it down, and left <laughs> as fast as we could. But now I have to figure out when JC's older how to tell her, hey, you, uh, you've broken the Eighth Commandment. You are a thief in who you are, even as young as you may be. God told us not to steal. And we'll examine God's command not to steal this morning by answering the same four questions that we have for each of the Ten Commandments. One, why is theft wrong? Why should we obey this command? Two, how do we break this commandment? What does that look like today for us to be people who steal? Three, how has Christ fulfilled or transformed this commandment? And then four, what do we do to obey this command now as New Testament Christians in light of what Christ has done for us? So let's begin with our first question today. Why is theft wrong? 
Why should we obey this command? I actually think it's really important that we answer this question because of the implications of God prohibiting theft. I mean, if we accept that you shouldn't take what isn't yours, and basically all societies do, there's very few societies that just operate by pirate law where you can just grab whatever you want. But if we accept that, then that tells a different story about our world than what a lot of people actually think about it. I mean, if the driving force of life If the one true reality in all of the world is that those who are better equipped for survival are the ones who are going to survive, that everything is simply survival of the fittest, then there is no such thing as theft. It doesn't exist. There are just resources which are free to the taking for whoever happens to be able to take them. I mean, if you look at our economy, it works on a principle of scarcity, that there's only so much of something to go around, that that lack of supply married to some kind of demand creates value, that it becomes more expensive because there's not enough of it for everyone to have it. Therefore, only the people who are willing to pay this much for it are able to get it. That's the simple tenet behind how everything works and how it all operates. But if that's true then theft should just be a natural part of how we operate, right? I mean, if you having something means that I might not be able to have that thing, but I need it, or I want it, then if I'm able to take it from you, I should, if we accept all those things I just said. In a world driven not by the design and morality of the God of the universe, but a world driven by the cold facts of evolutionary survival, theft does not exist. Theft is just Tuesday. It's just what happens. And when you think about it, theft is actually a good thing in that worldview. It's actually your fault that you've been stolen from. And the fact that you can be stolen from, the fact that I'm able to take it from you, means that you should be stolen from so that your gene pool dies out and that mine continues on. Weak people who can't hold on to their stuff, they're just holding the rest of us back. So more than we might think, I think we have to have an answer to this question. Why is theft wrong? Because I think we may have accepted theft as a natural part of life more than we tend to realize. I mean, so much of our lives are ordered by theft, by trying to avoid it. We lock our homes every time we leave. We lock our cars every time we get out of it. We put passwords on our debit cards. We put our wallets not just in the shoe, but all the way toward the toe so that no one walking by is just going to walk by and snatch our wallet out of it whenever we go to the beach. We know that theft is a risk. It determines where we park whenever we go to the city. It determines where we leave our backpack in the car. It can't be visible from the outside. It's got to be tucked under a seat. We are so afraid that people want our stuff that we are going to lock our doors while we're clearly home in the middle of the day with our cars parked outside on a Saturday when no one is ever going to break into your house and try to take your stuff. But just because we acknowledge the reality the commonality of theft, that doesn't make it okay just because it's something that happens. Stealing is wrong. What is stealing? It's gaining at someone else's unwilling expense. That's the the definition of theft I'm going to use. It's gaining at someone else's unwilling expense. So you gaining simple prosperity, that's not necessarily the problem. Even you gaining at someone else's expense isn't necessarily the, the problem. 
as long as they're a willing participant, as long as they have agreed to the fair interest rate that you are going to charge them for whatever it is that you're doing. You gaining through that isn't actually theft. But you can't gain from someone else's unwilling expense or else it is theft. It's wrong. And it's wrong because someone owns it. It belongs to them. Everything is owned by someone, and it's from that basic foundation of property ownership that God is telling us not to steal. He's establishing that things are owned by people. He's establishing as fact that everything belongs to someone. So there has to be an order to that ownership structure. For us to take from someone else is really to say that they don't own that object, but I do. That they don't deserve what they have, but I do. That there's nothing about them and who they are that gives them the right to continue owning whatever object it is that they currently own. For us to take from them is an affront to that person's value, not the value of the object. It says nothing about the value of the object. It says everything about the value that we place on that person from whom we stole. For us to take from them is an attack on the image of God within them. When we take from someone else, we're attacking their worth that comes from being made in the image of God, just like where we get our inherent worth, that they have a right to own something just as I do because both of us have been made in God's image. We're the same. We're disrespecting them at an identity level here by taking from them. We're signaling that we are more value than they are, that we deserve more than they do, that our needs are more important than theirs. We devalue the person by thinking that we as people have a better claim to their stuff than their due. So theft is wrong because it devalues the person. It communicates that the thing is of more value to us than that person. But beyond that, we're told not to steal because God was setting up a whole new society in his law. And society can't function where theft is encouraged, where it's allowed, where it's tolerated. That's chaos. It's anarchy. When individual ownership means nothing and the violation of that ownership incurs no penalty, there's no way for society to continue functioning. I mean, money is meaningless. Labor is meaningless. Personal agreements are meaningless because everything is just up for grabs all the time to whoever happens to be holding it in their hands at that particular moment. That's whoever it belongs to. When no one actually owns anything, then there's no incentive for anyone to work for anything. Because everything that you have, everything that you've earned, can simply be grabbed away from you. It can be stolen from you. What God's doing here is he's setting up a society in which ownership is important because a world like that actually reflects the reality that he is the owner of all things. The fact that we who are made in the image of God, that we own things, points us to the reality that he owns things. On Mount Sinai, right before he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, in Exodus 19, verse 5, God says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The whole reasoning behind the law that he's giving them in all of the Old Testament law, but particularly here in the Ten Commandments, is he's saying, you are mine, therefore obey these commands. You belong to me, so keep my laws. Psalm 50, verse 10, says a similar thing. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
He's not running out of stuff. He's the owner of all things because he is the creator of all things. Every single one of us has made in heaven stamped on us when we roll off the assembly line. We are his. The earth is his. Therefore, stealing is wrong because all stealing is in effect stealing from God. He owns all. He provides all. So for us to steal is to say that he didn't give us enough. That the one to whom it belongs didn't allocate me enough of whatever that is. It's for us to say that he is a withholding father. That he is a poor provider for his children. When we know that that's not the case. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, he's given us himself as our portion. Therefore, we've received a beautiful inheritance far beyond anything that we might deserve. We have been given infinitely more than we deserve, infinitely more than we would have had otherwise. He is our portion. Stealing is definitely wrong. It's us looking toward the heavens and declaring, you don't own this, God. You don't get to determine who has what. Beyond that, you haven't given me everything that I need. So this doesn't belong to you to do with as you please anymore. It's mine now. I'm in charge. We look, uh, we're, we're going to look more at the root of theft when we look at the 10th commandment in a couple weeks, where we look at coveting, because I think that's actually where theft begins, is in the desire itself. But when we steal... We're reorganizing God's closet, and we're making it worse. So if stealing is wrong because it devalues other people, it values things over people, because it contradicts a flourishing society, and because it's actually stealing from God, then what does that look like for us to steal? How are we thieves today? I'll give several ways by focusing really on the indirect object of our theft, that we steal from man and we steal from God. Obviously, in the beginning, we... we, can steal from man in the way that you immediately think of. We steal from man by taking the possessions of someone else by force. We can rob someone. We can burgle someone. And that's obviously theft, which would fall under this commandment. Okay, if you walk into Eddie Bauer, you swipe some shirts, you put them in your baby's stroller, that's theft. We know that, absolutely. But we can also take from our fellow man by more deceptive means. For instance, it would be theft for us to use an unfair business practice to take from someone else. It's actually a common theme in Scripture that God talks about this all the time in His Word. He tells His people that they should use fair weights and measures in the marketplace so that they don't take advantage of people. Proverbs 16.11, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. You see, we might have this capitalistic mindset that everything is simply worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. But if we know the true value of something and we force someone else to pay an exorbitant amount over and above what we know the true value of it to be, we're stealing from them. Yeah, to a certain extent, it's worth what someone else is willing to pay for it, yes. But you know when you're taking someone else for a ride. You know when they're just a sap who's willing to pay whatever it is that you ask them to pay. That's stealing from them. That unaccounted for value that they're paying for but not actually receiving, that's theft. Here's another one, fraud. 
That idea that stealing from someone doesn't, uh, it doesn't just work itself out over a cash register. We can swindle someone in almost every area of our lives. But in our relationships with other people, that happens all the time. It's theft for us to commit any type of fraud. Any time that we might misrepresent ourselves, we're stealing in a sense. Maybe that's that we embellished on a resume, that we took the job that we're not actually qualified for from someone else who rightly would have gotten it. We're stealing if we say that we're going to do something and they're going to pay us to do that when we know that we can't actually follow through with it. We've stolen that opportunity, that responsibility from whoever would have held up their end of the agreement. That fraud is theft. Here's one I'm absolutely sure we are all guilty of. And a lot of us probably don't even think about it anymore as theft. Time theft. I mean, we we steal from our employers by not working hard, or maybe by not working at all, while we're at work. We steal time from our friends routinely, all the time. When we say that we're going to meet them at 6, and then we show up at 6.15. We've stolen their time. I mean, time's the only resource they're not getting back. And we took it from them because we decided that our time was worth more than theirs. That what we did in that 15-minute interim is more important than whatever they were going to do in that same time. We gained that 15 minutes from them at their unwilling expense. We are people who take from our fellow man all the time, who steal from our fellow man all the time. But as we said earlier, all theft is in reality theft from God. We can steal from him directly, and we take from him way more than we do from other men. And the primary way that we steal from God, that's through idolatry. Anytime we take the worship that's meant for him and for him alone and direct it somewhere else, we're stealing from him. That's really the root of all of our sin, the worship of the created rather than the creator. That's why he begins his commandments, the first command, by declaring that we are to have no other gods before him. To break the first commandment is to also break the eighth. He tells us this because we're so prone to have idols. He is a jealous God who demands of us not to bow down or to serve anyone else. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other." nor my praise to carved idols. Nothing, no one else, is worthy of his glory. And he refuses to let them have it. So for us to give our worship, our attention, our focus, our thoughts, our desires to anything but him, that's us robbing him of that which is rightfully his. It's us robbing him of the only currency that he actually cares about, our worship. He wants our lives. So to succumb to idolatry, that's to actively steal from God. But I think you can also steal from him a little more passively than we may think, simply by practicing poor stewardship. He owns, he gives all according to his will. He has given us, he's given you exactly what you need right now. And everything that we've been given was given to us with the intention that it be leveraged, that it be used for the advancement of his kingdom, for his purposes, for making his kingdom come down and be on earth as it is in heaven. So for us to take what he has given us and to misapply it for purposes other than those that he intended, that's to commit fraud against him. 
It's to take from him. It's for us to gain, to squander resources from him that he intended for other uses. We can be poor stewards of our time, maybe through laziness or disorganization. We can be poor stewards of our money by hoarding it for ourselves or maybe by throwing it away on worthless things. But regardless of our reason, regardless of our method, for us to waste a gift from our Heavenly Father is to steal from Him. It's to say that we don't really value that which we've been given. And I think maybe the the most heartbreaking example of poor stewardship is found when we refuse to share our faith to the people around us. I mean, the greatest gift that he has given us is the gift of himself, broken and poured out for us on the cross. So now for us to waste that gift by either not living lives worthy of that which we've been called to, or by withholding the opportunity for that same salvation from those that we are supposed to be loving, our neighbors, I think that's the most egregious example of poor stewardship on our part. That's us taking his gift, the greatest gift, and just holding on to it, just hoarding it. Even though he said, I gave this to you that you might spread that gospel, you might spread that message to everyone around you, it's us saying, yeah, okay, sure, give it to me, but that's where it stops. That's where it ends. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 say this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we who are in Christ are now ambassadors for Christ. So everywhere we go is kingdom land, it's kingdom territory, and we're supposed to be taking his gospel with us as we do so. As we go, as we spread his message, that is God making his appeal through us. So what we do is we implore men, we beg, we plead, we show, we winsomely reveal the truth of the gospel to them in such a way that they might be reconciled to God. And the message that we take to them is verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We say that is true for me right now and it could be true for you right now in the same sense. Our salvation, our message, our gospel is given to us for his glory and for ourselves, but also that we might give it to others. What we're doing is we're taking the gospel message from them when we don't deliver it to them as we're supposed to, when we don't tell him that gospel message. In that sense, we're stealing from both God and man. We're taking a worshiper from him. We're exhibiting poor stewardship against him with the message that he gave us, but we're also taking the joy of God from them. We're taking the eternal salvation that's open to them from them, which I think leads us to our third question this morning. How has Jesus fulfilled or transformed this commandment for us? Well, first of all, uh, he fulfilled it by never stealing, but simply giving. He, who is God, has given to all mankind life and breath and everything. For all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As creator, he is giver of all things. So we've already talked about how God owns everything, but this isn't simply about ownership. It's that he owns it because he created it and gave it. 
He can't steal. It is actually impossible, by definition, for God to steal. It's all his. Everything belongs to him. From whom is he going to take anything? He can't steal. And even beyond that, there's no reason for him to steal anything, even if he could steal. I mean, what do you have that he needs? How could you possibly add anything to the infinite, eternal, perfect, holy God of the universe? I mean, that's the context for most of those passages in Scripture that talk about his ownership of all things. Most of the time, whenever he's reminding his people, hey, everything is mine, it goes like this. He says, what are you going to give me? Everything's already mine. Therefore, you need to get out of your heads that this is a negotiation. That we're simply haggling over terms because it's mine already. God doesn't steal. Therefore, Christ doesn't steal. He never did. But what he did do over and over, every second of every day, was give. He gave in every miracle that he enacted. I mean, those 5,000 people had no food, and he gave some to them. The wedding was out of line, so he gave some to them. The man couldn't walk, so he gave him the ability to walk. Lazarus was dead, so Christ gave him life. He was constantly giving. Out of the overflow of his own infinite goodness, he gave to everyone he came in contact with, and he never took anything. That's really the purpose of why he came. He is the anti-thief, coming not to steal, but to give. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When we see all good things as a gift from the Father, we're able to understand the fullness of that idea. That though the, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy... I, Christ, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, his life in the flesh, which he took to himself so that he could save us in our flesh. His work in the flesh, where he fulfilled the law that we kept breaking. And rather than justly taking our lives, what he did was he laid down his own. That life, that death, followed by his return to life in defeat of death, so that he can freely give his life to all who repent and believe. That gospel, that is the greatest gift that we have ever been given. And it's because of him that we can be freed from our sinful default position, which is thievery, which is as thieves, people who steal. It's through that gospel that Jesus now redeems thieves. He saves us from the consequences of all our theft. I mean, we can be more confident that Jesus saves thieves specifically than we can of almost any other sin in all of Scripture. We know that there is no sin that he cannot redeem you from, but we know specifically that thieves can be saved because of the example of Scripture. When Jesus was crucified, he was hung between two thieves, two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. Even they admitted that they deserved their own deaths, that they had done those crimes. But when one of them asked Jesus to take pity on him, Jesus was able to reply, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief was saved. The thief was saved even though his theft was one of the last things he ever did. 
The thief was saved without ever having to go back and repay anyone. The thief was saved without a life in response to that, which ever had anything that improved about it. He was saved, and then he died. He had done so much. He had earned his death. We have no idea how much he had stolen, how many times it had taken for him to finally get caught and then to be crucified. All we know about him is that he was a thief who called on Jesus, who acknowledged him as God, who showed repentance from the sins that he had committed in that call, and that Christ saved him. Because it was for that thief that Jesus died on the cross. It was for thieves like you and me that Jesus died on the cross. We should thank God that Jesus died for thieves. Thank God that he redeems thieves. Because without that hope that he is the God who saves thieves in spite of their theft, every one of us is lost. But he not only saves us, he, continue giving, he continues giving to us. We now are actually better off than the thief on the cross in our lives because he was never able to enact his repentance in his life. He was converted and he died almost immediately. But though we now can receive that same salvation that he received, the same assurance of our salvation that he received, we now have the opportunity, the gift of God to us, that we can respond to that salvation through a life which glorifies God directly. That the end of our life isn't thievery and death. That we get to continue in our lives, giving glory to him in every moment. Christ doesn't just save thieves. He gives them a new way of life. He gives them a new purpose. A new way of understanding who they are and where they fit in the universe. Ephesians 4, verse 28 says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That is the promise of Christ. That's the gift of God. That through him, we, the thieves, might no longer steal that we might no longer continue in the sin in which we are caught, but that we can labor with honest hands and then now become not the thieves, but the givers of all that we have, of all that he's given us. Rather than the thieves that we are without him, we become the givers who give with him. He completely rewrites our story in light of the gospel. You were a thief and now you're not. So you're going to live differently. So he didn't take your life as a consequence of your sins. No, he gave you life and redeemed you from your sins. He didn't take your way of life and leave you with no way to live your life, no vocation. He's actually given you a new hope, a new direction, a new vocation, a new calling. He's fulfilled the command by not stealing but giving, and he's transformed it in you so that you no longer have to see yourself as someone who needs what someone else has. Rather, you know that now you are the one who has what someone else needs. Which leads us, I think, into our fourth and final question today. What do we do now? How do we obey this command in light of what Christ has done? I'll give three ways quickly. I think we now as Christians, who have received all good things from our God who saved us, I think we now must have a value system which always and continually values people over things. 
we think that people are more valuable. People are more important. People should receive more of our focus, time, and energy than things do. If theft is wrong because it inverts that, it holds the stuff over the person from whom we're taking it, then at all times, we who are the anti-thieves now need to be a people who are people people rather than a people who are stuff people. I mean, we would never swipe $20 off the counter because we know that that belongs to someone. There's a person on the other end of that. We don't charge too much for a product because we know that that price is going to be paid by a person. We don't allow ourselves to be perpetually late because we know there's a person who's waiting on us. We don't allow ourselves to to hoard our things or even worse, to, to hoard our gospel message because we know that we're keeping those good gifts from someone else. We are a people people, not a things people. Whatever that might mean for us, whatever application that might mean for you, whatever that might look like for us as a church, to value people over things, people over our building, people over our money, people over our stuff, over our programs, over our comfort, that we hold people and the message we have to give to them as absolutely, infinitely more important than anything else that's tangible in this building. We're people people. We are those who no longer steal, but now we labor and give to whoever has need. We value people over things. I think that's the the first thing we do now. But the second thing is that we trust God for his provision. I don't want to go too in-depth here because this is going to be a major focus in a couple weeks whenever we look at coveting the 10th commandment. But the person who trusts God for his provision absolutely will not steal. We can avoid our sin of theft by trusting that God's going to take care of us. That he who is the maker of all things, who is the giver of all things, is going to be one that we can trust in. So now we only have to trust in him, trust that he is able to provide for us, that he is the good father who wants to provide for us. I mean, he tells us repeatedly that he is good and that he will give us what we need. We're told to consider the lilies of the field that neither toil nor spin, yet Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed as well as one of these. He hasn't called us to have everything that we might want. He hasn't called us to have everything that we might think that we need. And there will come a day when even our lives are taken from us, which we inherently kind of think that we do need. But what we really need is to trust him, to love him, to repent and believe in him. And ultimately to be content in him. Because a man who is content will never steal. But finally, the third thing that we do now to obey this command is we are good stewards of whatever it is that he's given us. We don't move forward into greater obedience or even greater prosperity. We don't do that by stealing. No, we're good stewards of what we have. We don't steal to get ahead, even though we may strategically leverage whatever it is that we have to get ahead. We're all about leveraging what he's given us, being faithful in the little things so that when our master returns, we can say, look at all we did with what you gave us. You gave me five talents and I didn't go bury it. I turned it into 10. Beyond trusting in him for our needs so that we no longer feel the need to steal, we now should be a people who have a correct view of our property. 
which allows us to view our possessions as gifts from the Father, which have been given to us for a purpose. So now let our lives, let our resources, let every word from our mouths be leveraged for kingdom purposes. We brought nothing into this world. We're going to take nothing out of it. So we aren't people who risk our lives running back into a burning house for things, for objects. But we are people, I think, who have insurance. We are people who have smoke detectors. We don't ignore things. We simply see our things as instruments to be used for a greater purpose. So now our home isn't just a personal refuge. Our home isn't just a property asset. It's a home base from which we can exhibit Christian hospitality, from which we can welcome our friends, our neighbors, our our church members. We can welcome in non-believers at our own expense. We're supposed to see everything that we have, including ourselves, as instruments to be used for His greater purpose, wherever that might mean, wherever that might look like. And when we do that, When we begin to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, for what is good stewardship if it's not that? Whenever we do that, I think we'll start to see some of that abundant life that Christ came to give us. I think we'll start following in his steps as anti-thieves. And I think we'll start being able to obey this commandment as a response to the repentance and belief that he has given us, his gospel that he's given us. We now follow through on that repentance, to become no longer thieves, but people who give. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for life and breath and everything. Thank you for the truth of your word found in your law. Thank you for the hope of the gospel, which is even found in your law. Thank you for giving Christ who not only upheld the law and fulfilled it for us, but also transformed it in us. Also gave us the hope and promise of new life, of abundant life. Gave us a pattern to follow that we might no longer be the people who steal. We might no longer be the people who take. But that now, through you, in you, because of your gospel, your work, we have a glorious future awaiting for us where we are not the people who steal, but we're the people who give. We're the people who glory in your giving for all of eternity. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.